everybody, and welcome to the Deadhead Cannabis Show. Jim Marty here from Longmont, Colorado, and I've got my partner, Larry Mishkin, up in Chicago. Hi, Larry. Jim, how are you today? Very good. Things are good here in Colorado, although it's been cold, but things are cranking along. Out visiting uh, my cannabis clients this week, running around Denver, and you know, no matter which store right. I go to, there's always activity, there's always people coming and going. That's great. That's great. We're just sitting here getting hit by our first snowfall of the year. All right. Yep. It's a little too early for my taste, and I'm sure the farmers are probably not thrilled with it, but it's here, and, you know, we'll just have to make the best of it. So what do we have on tap today, Jim? Oh, we can talk about Illinois again, because that's moving forward. We can talk about some of the things going on here in Colorado. I think Colorado still continues to be the epicenter of the cannabis world. You had come up with some statistics on how many um, dispensaries there'll be in Illinois once they issue the adult use licenses and comparing that to other states. What was your comment on that, Larry? Yeah, Jim, you know, one of the things that you and I have talked about this before on a number of shows is, you know, what's it going to look like in Illinois after January 1 when we have the rollout? And, uh, you know, what can people expect to see based both on, you know, historically what's happened in other locations, but also you know, based on the specifics of the Illinois program. And we've commented on the limited small number of dispensaries, relatively speaking, that are going to be allowed in Illinois. And now there's some studies out that have actually compared across the number of states that have adult use programs, the number of dispensaries they have per 100,000 residents. The estimate is by the end of 2020, when there could be a maximum of 185 adult use dispensaries in the state of Illinois, that would only be about 1.5 dispensaries for every 100,000 residents. So by way of comparison, uh, Oregon is 15.7 dispensaries per 100,000 residents, and Colorado is 10 dispensaries per 100,000 residents. But for Illinois, even at the end of 2021, when it's reached its peak rollout, and could have a maximum of up to 295 dispensaries, it'll still be no higher than only 3.9 dispensaries per 100,000 people. And, uh, you know, uh, Illinois really can go up to a a total of 500. The the statute allows ultimately for a total of 500 dispensaries, but even that would still be a quarter of the number of adult-use dispensaries on a per capita basis that are currently operating in Oregon, right? So I guess it just depends what side of the fence you're sitting on. If If you're a customer... This may not be the best news because it's going to guarantee a competitive market and, you know, that the prices will probably be a little bit higher than what we're seeing in Oregon and Colorado these days. On the other hand, if you're on the business side, this is good news because it's going to hopefully prevent uh, the type of market collapse we've seen in Oregon and some other adult use states. Yeah, I would agree with those comments. Yeah, certainly 1.5 dispensaries per 100,000 people is not enough. But at the other end of the spectrum, maybe the 10 in Colorado and the 15 per 100,000 in Oregon is too much. I think I mentioned right. maybe on a previous show that over 100 cannabis licenses have been turned back into the state and city of Denver. In fact, Denver wow. may st- has had a moratorium for a couple of years on new retail, and they may actually go and reverse that because now they're below the the self-imposed limit that they set within the city and county of Denver. Mm -hmm. But as I said, I've been out visiting the shops, and I hear the same thing wherever, whichever clients I visit with, is we need more flour. We need more flour. 
I'm saying to myself, wow, yeah. you know, basically 10 years, you know, since the Cole and Ogden memos launched the modern day cannabis industry, be it medical or adult use. But we've been growing a lot here in Colorado for the last 10 years, and yet there still mm -hmm. doesn't seem to be enough product. So, in fact, one of my really good clients, they grow 15 to 20,000 pounds a year. They're constantly running out and having to close their shop early. Certainly, there's terrible shortage in Massachusetts. So the demand yep. for this product is very, very strong. And the states really need to realize that if they want this to be a normalized industry and get rid of the black market and collect their taxes, they really need to size their marijuana program to match its population. In fact, I my agree. good client here was talking about 15, 20,000 pounds a year. You know, they're sitting with their most recent harvest still at a testing facility. The testing facilities are now taking seven to 10 days to uh, let you know if your product has passed or not. And so they're sitting there with empty shelves waiting for testing results. So wow. the supply and demand are not in sync, even for a mature, I, you know, Colorado's considered a mature market for sure. cannabis. And even here, we can't seem to get the supply demand thing right. So yeah, a new state like Illinois, there's gonna be long lines, there's gonna be shortage of product, there'll be higher prices, and the black mm -hmm. market will still exist because people aren't gonna wait in a two or three hour line if they can go see their local dealer and not pay any taxes right exactly right that's obviously what we're hoping we can avoid but you know I, I guess it's like anything else right you have to roll out the program and you know no matter how many times you watch other states do it every state has to try for itself and you know figure out how it can do it yes so anyway what's going on musically i think i mentioned we're gonna head out for christmas to la to see two dead and company shows in la so we're looking forward to that and we got Oysterhead is coming to Colorado. So, you know, Oysterhead yep. being Trey from Fish and Stuart Copeland. And I was, from reading, the I was reading that he just, the Trey just finished up a solo acoustic tour where he played at Carnegie Hall. Right, right. And I, I also heard Fish is doing a free show at the Met in New York City on December. Really? First week of December. Wow. Okay. That's something and it's going to be out. that would be a lot of fun. Yeah, it's going to be broadcast live on satellite radio. Right. Well, they got their own station now too. They've they've achieved Grateful Dead status with their uh, fish has its own uh, station on the Sirius Radio. That's very cool. I like that. Yes. Yep. They're having a, they're on a roll. People are they're actually breaking into the mainstream where you know people who you might not expect. Oh yeah, I know who Fish is and I've heard their music. So I think maybe when was it earlier this year when St. Louis won the stanley cup right and fish was played in st louis and played gloria for the crowd that made national news that was on like the cbs morning show so yeah people well, are starting I, to get to the fishes yeah it's always good to see them now you know we we spend a lot of time on this show jim talking about music and most of it and given the name of our show appropriately so is focused on the grateful dead we've touched on fish we've touched on tedeschi trucks and and some of the other great jam bands out there but I, I hate to ignore other good music uh, that may not def uh, fit within the, 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 the four corners of a de definition of a jam band. Last night, my wife and I had a chance to go out. To, we have a, Here in, where we live in Evanston, Illinois, there's a really, really amazing music venue called Space, which is right on a street corner uh, from the outside. It looks like a pizza joint that it is in the front. You go in the back, and there's this big, empty area, and 
uh, you know, can maybe hold two, maybe 300 people, but the quality of music that comes through there is simply outstanding. And last night we had a chance to see Peter Himmelman, who is a singer-songwriter originally from the uh, Minneapolis area, grew up in the St. Louis Park community of Minneapolis, and I only know that because he talks about it incessantly throughout the show. He's a fascinating person musically. He's married to Maria Dillon. He's got a little bit of a Bob Dylan sound to him when he sings, uh, but very, very talented. Uh, you know, Commanded a crowd for well over two hours last night, and what I really like about him is he, he's a showman, and he, he has a good constant banter going on with the audience the whole time, and a lot of give and take, and, uh, and he, he kind of has a, almost a little Robin Williams-esque in him. He He's in the middle of one of his songs, and then he'll stop and jump into three chords of Freebird and then jump back into his song just to see who's paying attention. And, uh, you know, I, I, I like that kind of irreverence when it comes to, you know, to live music, and it's always refreshing to see someone who's obviously achieved some level of success and doesn't take himself too seriously. So for any of our listeners out there uh, who are otherwise inclined to hear a, uh, a really, really good uh, indie rock performer, strongly recommend that you go see Peter Himmelman. Interestingly, he had a band back when he was in high school in the Minneapolis area called Sussman Lawrence that actually uh, got quite a following both in Minnesota and other parts throughout the Midwest. It was just he and a bunch of his buddies from high school. Now he's gone on on his own and, and really extended out. But it, it's amazing. You can find people kind of all over the place if they have Minneapolis roots who have heard of this guy. But again, if he ever shows up in your neighborhood, he comes with a strong recommendation. Huh, well, I have to keep my eyes open. How old is he? But again, I, I know this because he kept talking about he's 59 and he kept saying, as I'm about to turn 60, as I'm about to turn 60. And, you know, it was, okay. it was, it was a very funny part of this thing. But really, really good. You know, obviously has great traditional rock roots, but yet is very much aware of the state of the uh, music scene today and, you know, comments in his own way on all of it. I gotcha. Interesting. All right. Yeah. So something definitely worth checking out. Yeah, that is definitely an interesting story. So, all right, well, I guess back to the cannabis world and cannabis business. I think we are starting to see some issues here, especially in Massachusetts, banning all vape products, including tobacco-based products. They have this temporary four-month ban going on right now, and now they're going to have some public hearings. Is that what you hear, Larry? Yeah, actually, it's they are going to have some public hearings, but amazingly, and I, I, I say amazingly because I... Now, for a government to take this level of accountability is not what we're used to. But Charlie Baker, who's the uh, Republican governor of Massachusetts, indicated that his office is going to file a statement that will estimate the financial impact to small-town business owners from the statewide ban on all vaping products. And on November 22nd, there will be a public hearing on the statewide ban where people can come in and talk about it. But uh, I think it's really, really impressive that somebody who's a, the leader of an entire state is willing to take the time to do this kind of investigation and take a look at the other side of it, because I think that people have to recognize that and this is not to downplay the personal toll that it's taking. I think they said that to date uh, there's been uh, almost 1,900 reported cases of lung illness and 37 deaths associated with the vaping crisis, if you want to call it that. And obviously, uh, every one of those instances is important and deserves the, the respect that it gets. But in the midst of all of this, we don't want to lose sight of the small business owner who sells vape products that are safe and are legal and aren't inclined to cause these types of problems. You know, they're really getting wiped out by this type of a ban. And I, and I applaud the governor for at least taking a look at that side of it, you know, to see what they're doing. 
maybe, you know, you mentioned this the other, the other day, Jim, when you were out there, it may very well be because he woke up and he noticed that Maine is starting to get all of their vaping business. It was actually New Hampshire. Yeah. That people were stocking up on tobacco vaping products. So, uh, yeah, it's been especially hard for some of our Bridge West clients who that's all they do is extraction. It's been very painful for them. Yeah, we'll see if they get to the bottom of this. I don't think there's still been anything definitive about why some people are getting ill and then the vast majority of people who vape are not. So, you know, it's it's, it does seem to be hit or miss. It does. And I think that, uh, you know, uh, hopefully a little more focus and study on this will reach out and, and give us an answer. But I'm, I'm just always encouraged when I see a government official who's willing to take the time and effort to explore things from the, the point of view of the cannabis community and the cannabis industry. And so that's, I'm glad to see that, that Massachusetts is doing that. And hopefully uh, other states will take a look at what Massachusetts comes up with and take that information into account as it decides how to deal in its own, each state in its own way. So with what, how it perceives the vaping crisis. Have you been able to listen to your Dick's Bitch 32? As a matter of fact, I have, and it came out. It's got it recently. It's another 1973 show. I love 1973 a lot. I think it's a great year. It's another great show from that year. You know, it's got tremendous highlights on it. Uh, If you've never noticed it before, go back and listen to a version of They Love Each Other from 1973. It's much more upbeat. It's a very peppy little tune as opposed to the kind of more slow, uh, melodic ballad that it turned into, you know, as time goes on. It's a version that I love, but they really only played it during 1973 that way. And it's well worth checking out because after I heard it that way, that's, that's the way I always wanted to hear it. That's a great tune that's on there. They have Box of Rain on there, of course. And what I love about that is that, uh, you know, we all became very focused on Phil's return to singing in the late 80s and early 90s and his versions of Box of Rain then. But, you know, in the, in the early 70s, Box of Rain was a regular part of the uh, repertoire with Phil singing regularly, and that's a good one on there. They also have, and I get a kick out of this, a really early version of U.S. Blues called Wave That Flag, where Jerry just kind of does a free rap all the way through. They still have the Wave That Flag chorus line, which is where they get the name of the song, but that's a fun song as well that they have on there. So it's a great album. The sound on it is fantastic. It's all well played. It's got some great classics and, you know, some fun tunes. Break Me and Bobby McGee, Sing Me Back Home, which was a great tune. They were playing a lot in that era. And it really kind of drives the point home. People talk about how the dead, you know, years after Garcia's death and, and the band actually touring remained so popular. Well, you know, there's no secret as to why. Four times a year, you know, they reach back into their vault. They pull out you know, some live classic that everyone's clamoring to see. They post it and it sells out. And, you know, it's a tremendous thing. I mean, imagine if, you know, for years the Beatles were releasing shows or Led Zeppelin or any other classic band we can think of, the Rolling Stones or the Who, you know, what that would be like. And yet here it is that had sit around and they wait, you know, to see what are the shows that they're going to release. And now you can already order the subscription for next year if you're interested in doing that. But it's great music, and they always give a good little review on it with a little written intro that, that comes in the package. And if you haven't picked up on any of the Dave's picks, a lot of them are sold out. I would highly recommend it, and this is a, a great, great show. Yes. I've heard the, that wave, that flag, that early iteration of U.S. Blues, and yeah, 
U.S. Blues hadn't been totally formed and laid down yet, and but they were basically working on it, and a lot of the lyrics stuck, and a lot of the lyrics in that Wave the Flag version went by the wayside. So, uh, yeah, that's very right. interesting to see the development of what became what we would call a Grateful Dead standard. Well, and isn't that interesting, right? I mean, most bands won't play a song live until it's been perfected. And then they take right. it out, you know, they're now they're finally ready to play it in concert. But that literally, right, would write and, and adjust their songs on the fly in concert. Wave that flag is a is a great example. I mean, that's an example where an earlier version was so became so well known that it actually achieved its own name. You know, they did the same thing with the song The Main Ten, which was just really an early version of Uncle John's band, the the jamming parts of Uncle John's band. And I love how they do that. I I saw Touch of Grey, right? Which, if you ask your average pro, oh, yeah, Touch of Grey came out in 1987 on you know, their In the Dark album. I saw them playing Touch of Grey live in concert in 1983. And, you know, Jerry was still fiddling around with the lyrics, and he, he always didn't sing yeah. it the same way twice. And still doesn't always sing it the same way twice. But, but you know, it was just fascinating to watch a song, you know, come together on stage. So finally it reached a point where it was a song, and that was always one of the fun things with them. All right. Yeah. It's hard to believe it was so long ago now that Touch of Grey was a huge hit. And the summer of yep. 1987, you couldn't turn on a, a radio. Of course, there was no satellite radio, just old-fashioned right. FM in the car without hearing that song. It was a, a tremendous I hit. Tell you, I, I'll, never, I'll never forget the first time I heard it on the radio, right? I was We were driving in a car, and all of a sudden it came on the radio, and I had to stop and turn it up, and... Like, oh my goodness, here's this song. I've been listening to it live for five years, and now it's finally on the radio. And they had a nice, clean studio version and everything, and it was a lot of fun. Yes. And I think it just hit the baby boomers at the right time when we were, you know, the leading edge of the baby boomers were starting to get a touch of grace. So I, I think it really struck a chord with the baby boomer generation of which you and I are a part of. Yep. But anyway, I think that's about what we have for this episode. I'm not yep. sure if you have anything else, Larry. Oh, man, Jim, you know, I, I could keep going for hours, but, you know, we've got more shows to do and we'll have lots of great stuff to cover in those shows, including in next week's show. I, uh, I think that you and I are going to start talking about some some new uh, action that's going on up on uh, Washington, D.C. to help design to protect the marijuana program. There's more to report on what's going on with vaping and how other parts of the industry, how it's affecting other parts of the industry. And always a lot to talk about and always a pleasure. Yes, yeah. So I want to talk some more about testing and what's going on. As a lead into that, to paraphrase one of my good clients, when you're growing cannabis, it's not an agricultural product. It's actually a pharmaceutical product. And that's very important. And we can talk about yes. some of the testing and the things that they're finding in testing and what's going on there. So I look forward to expanding on that maybe give a little bit of advice to people who are thinking about getting into the cultivation side of the business. In my opinion, cultivation is the most important part of the industry because if you grow it, you'll be able to sell it, assuming you test out okay. The only variable really is the price, which we've seen ticking up. You know, Even in Colorado, as I mentioned, 10 years of no cap on cultivation except for a couple of local ones like Denver and yet we still can't seem to produce enough to meet demand. So it all comes back to cultivation. So yeah, I'll talk more about cultivation and what's involved and some of the things that I'm working on in my practice with my clients on. 
things they're looking at, warehouses, the price of warehouses, both before and then after they get a cannabis business in their warehouse, what it does to their value. So, yeah, we'll have lots of good things to talk about. And we'll talk about some more music. Until next time, for the Grateful Dead Cannabis Show, Jim Marty saying over and out. Larry? Jim, thank you as always. Everyone have a great week, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Are you looking for the next great cannabis business to invest in? Then you need to check out the MJ Bulls podcast. Hi, I'm Dan Humiston. Join me each week as I speak to both cannabis entrepreneurs who are raising capital and cannabis investors who are investing capital. Our 10-minute episodes are perfect for the busy investor. Start listening to the MJ Bulls podcast today, wherever you listen to podcasts, and who knows, maybe you'll discover the next cannabis unicorn.